God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, the revelation of your grace in human flesh. Um, I pray that as we look at your word in the life of your son, Jesus, that during this time you would teach us to love you more, that you would encourage us, uh, that we would understand your word more so that we can live according to it. And I, I just pray that you bless our time together. Amen. Hi, guys. If you want to grab one of these sheets, we won't get there for a while, but th that sheet right there has some information on Herod, which Ooh, thank you. we won't get to for a little bit. But in fact, now that I think about it, maybe we won't even get to it today. That's okay. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Oh, and I should tell everybody that we will not meet the next two weeks. There will be no adult Sunday school for the next two weeks. So the next time that we're back together, and I'll try and like send out an email, but um, it will be the 25th of September. We will not meet the next two weeks. We're back here the 25th of September. Actually, and then we'll meet the 25th, and then we'll, we won't meet again the week after that because the church camping trip. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, sorry for the inconsistency. Yes. Yeah, there's 111 of us going on the church camping trip. It's going to be fun. I know. Crazy, right? All right. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and his brother James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. All right, so we already talked about last week, just briefly, verse 1, that his disciples followed him because that's what a disciple does. That shouldn't be surprising at all. Um, I think, unfortunately, the church has tragically abandoned. Hi, hi, everybody. Welcome. This idea that that's what a disciple does. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. So where Jesus goes, that's where his disciples go. That should really go without saying. All right. So the people of his home, hometown, how do they respond to Jesus' um, teaching, doing miracles? Yeah, they're, they're skeptical. They're in disbelief. I think it even goes a step beyond that. They're, they're incredulous. They're, they're actually offended that this guy who came from them now has this celebrity status. Maybe they're even a little bit envious. Um, we'll unpack that a little bit more. We don't get much detail about the early life of Jesus. We're in Mark chapter 6, by the way. We don't get much detail about the early years of Jesus' life, um, his childhood or his adolescence. But there are some things that we can kind of draw out of the text of Scripture about that area or that, that time of his life. Um, this scene 
kind of in combination with a couple other parts from the Gospels do allow us to get a little bit of a picture. So Jesus did not have a formal temple education that would have made him some kind of authorized rabbi. Okay, so maybe we can put it in these kinds of terms. Jesus is going about doing the work of maybe like a PhD holder teaching in a university, but he's got no PhD, right? He didn't go to the uh, approved channels to have some kind of authority to do the kind of teaching that he's doing, okay? What's that? So he's not accredited. He's not accredited. That's a better way of saying it. He, he, he's not an authorized rabbi or something like that, okay? So all Jewish kids had some kind of Torah education, probably until they, they got to like, for the boys at least, until they got to the age of like puberty, and then they would go and learn the trade of their father. So they all had some basic education in Torah, but Jesus didn't go on to study with some, some famous rabbi. Um, instead, he followed the path that most Jewish boys would take. That any Jewish boy who didn't show like a particular proclivity for learning and education and memorizing the Torah, interpreting the Torah, would just follow the footsteps of their father, right? So that's why they say in verse uh, 3, is not this the carpenter, right? This is the guy who was doing what his dad was doing, which is doing the work of a carpenter, not, not some religious education. Um, until Jesus started his ministry, his life must have been very unremarkable. There wasn't much to uh, sort of set him aside, even in his own town where he grew up as some kind of phenomenal uh, character. The people are shocked at who Jesus has become, right? Who is this guy? Like the last time we saw him before he left, he was just the carpenter, the son of Mary, and now here he comes back to town to teach like he's some kind of rabbi. Who does he think he is? Okay. Uh, I would suggest to you that Jesus led a very quiet, nondescript kind of life until the wedding at Cana. That's when things really begin to um, move towards his, his season of ministry. So Jesus is called a carpenter. He must have made his living doing just that. There's this city. If you were to look at your map in the back of your Bible... You might see, like in the time of Jesus, just northwest of Nazareth was a town called Sepphoris uh, that was destroyed in a war probably 50 or maybe 100 years before Jesus was born. And during the life of Jesus, or, or probably during the early childhood of Jesus, that town began to be rebuilt. And in fact, they built a wall around the whole thing and it became kind of a, a prominent um, city in the area. And so more than likely Jesus and his father, well, Jake, uh, Jacob, I'm sorry, Joseph, um, were, uh, were doing carpentry work in that area, probably in Sepphoris, okay? And he must have been doing that for quite some time because Joseph is alive when Jesus is 12. We know that from Luke chapter 2, verse 41. But at some point he disappears. That's the last time we see him, when Jesus is 12. So maybe uh, Joseph died when, when Jesus was 13, 14, 18, somewhere in there. Uh, which means Jesus would have assumed the responsibility as the oldest son to, to care for the family. Okay? It would have fallen to him to do the carpentry work to provide the food for his family. And the town knows details about the family, right? 
They know that this is the son of Mary, that he's the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. His sisters are here with us. Uh, and then they take offense. And they take offense because Jesus is doing the kinds of things that a very prestigious person would do. And yet he's a nobody, right? He's the carpenter's kid. Jesus is behaving like some kind of wealthy or maybe educated person. And yet he's just the son of Mary, the carpenter guy. So I think a good word here is uppity. <laughs> Jesus is behaving uppity beyond his social status. And the people that he grew up with from his same social status are offended by that. That he doesn't seem to know his proper place. And I think this is actually a really beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. Because what it's saying is that the kingdom of God is available to everyone. Right? Throughout history, we have thought there are privileged kinds of people. You know, the powerful, the kings, the wealthy, the educated. Those kinds of people are privileged. And the rest of us are just average. But I think this picture shows us that if Jesus, the Son of God, can come from that very normal social sphere, that very normal social rung on the ladder, then the kingdom of God is something that is not for exceptional people. It's for normal people. And sadly, the people don't see it because rather than enter into the invitation that Jesus is offering, that you too can receive the kingdom of God, that you too can be blessed by God, what do they, what do they want to do to him? I think they would rather see him torn down, right? Jesus is, is coming with this gospel message that says the kingdom of God is here. It's available to you. That's the same message he would have been teaching to these people. And rather than them responding by saying, yes, I would like to step into that, they say, no, 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 who do you think you are? You need to come back down here where we are. Does that make sense? Any, any other thoughts on any of that, the kind of background of Jesus? Or? Um, I was curious, uh, this just going based off what you're talking about, the geography of where, for a long time people, I guess for a lot of people that are skeptical of the Nazareth was even, even existed, have you heard that? I actually like, haven't, Nazareth? no. 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 They, were, they were just saying because of, it didn't have as, uh, I guess until Dead Sea Scrolls, some of the others, there's been new new findings and stuff that have given it more accreditation, but got it. But uh, that was just something I, I looked at and I was like, well, I can't believe that that was, you know, I got didn't it. know if you'd heard, of, heard that. No, but it never ceases to amaze me. So there's this whole realm of, of like, um, pedagogy or uh, academia that has this word critical in front of it, okay? So maybe you've heard of it with the more, more recent stuff, critical race theory. Mm -hmm. That word critical doesn't mean that we are, you know, analyzing to find out the truth. That word critical in higher academia means we are deconstructing and destroying, right? And so this really began post-enlightenment in like the late 1700s. Hi guys, welcome. Hello. It's just you. No, I have to watch she's, she's, she's coming somewhere, okay. Yeah. Well, come on in. Do we need to move some stuff on the floor there? No, that's good. You, you got it? Okay, welcome. So this idea of critical scholarship, 
is this idea that we take things that are obvious and we destroy it, right? So if you were to pick up like a mainstream commentary on uh, 1 Timothy, what you would find is that the first 50 pages would be about how this book, Timothy, 1 Timothy was not actually written by Paul, even though it begins by saying Paul, right? So what I'm getting at is it doesn't surprise me at all when somebody's like, well, you know, there's this scholarship that says Nazareth never existed. Okay, whatever. Uh, for you know, 1800 years, every Christian believed it did. Right. So. Did the critique necessarily um, meant to to tear down, though? I mean, a critique. Well, they've 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 stolen this word, critical, okay, right? Like, I mean, critical feedback is is meant to ultimately like lead to improvements, mm-hmm. right? But this realm of higher academia is really full of just kind of arrogance and it takes things that are obvious and just tries to destroy them. So critical race theory is not about, um, you know, trying to figure out a way to make racial reconciliation the norm. It's about destroying anything that, that would accomplish that goal. So the word critical is not bad, but when it's used in this realm of academia, it means something different. Does that make sense? And I didn't mean to make a discussion about critical race theory. I'm just trying to show how that word has its place. Critical Bible scholarship. But that was then as well as now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it continues to be used that way. Yeah. So you had you remember the Jesus Seminar? Yeah, the Jesus Seminar is a great example of that. So that this is where they took the Bible and they, they said basically ended up with Jesus said 10 words. Right. And so... And so, basically, they, they tried to disprove the Bible completely, and so, uh, and had a Christian scholars who were really not Christians. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example. The Jesus Seminar, if you want to look it up, it was this thing, I think, in the late 70s or maybe early 80s, and they got together, like, probably 50 or 100 secular Bible scholars and they sat around this room and they went through the different sayings and actions of Jesus and they basically just voted on whether they thought it was true or not. And then they threw out like 90% of it and said, this is the real Jesus. Well, that's critical scholarship. Like it's just, it's kind of dumb. It's narcissistic. Anyway, we can we can move on. The point is, uh, I've not heard that Nazareth, did, Nazareth didn't exist, but I'm not surprised to hear that there are people who think Nazareth yeah. didn't exist. I've been there. Yeah, have you been there? Okay. Yeah, it, it actually does exist. Right on. Yes. Sure. And I'm not surprised by that either, because I believe that what the Bible says is true is true. Okay, so it's also interesting here in uh, verse uh, 3 of Mark chapter 6 that they call Jesus the son of Mary, but they don't call him the son of Joseph. So probably the most obvious reason why that's the case is because Joseph is dead and he's not around anymore. Um, But I wonder if there's a second kind of reason here, which is that they're aware of some of the backstory, right? Like... We know that this guy, Jesus, was born before the math works out for Joseph and Mary to have been wed. Does that make sense? And I think that the, even the Pharisees hint at this in another place because they say Jesus is, is, is really kind of harping on them and saying, you know, you call yourselves sons of Abraham, but you're really sons of the devil. And they say, well, we know our father, you, we don't know. Right. The gospel of John. Yeah, is that where it comes up in John? They accuse him of being a 
basically bastard. a bastard. A bastard, right. Yep, totally. Um, so Jesus is the son of Mary, and he's not exactly the son of Joseph. He's the adopted son of Joseph. So, you know, the they seem to be aware of that. All right. Um, and I think at one point, these people in Nazareth here probably liked Jesus. I would imagine Jesus was a very likable guy. Um, I would imagine he would be the kind of guy you would want to spend time around. And yet now something has changed and they take offense at him. Can I ask him real quick without rabbit hole too, too much? Yeah. You, you met his brothers, uh, his siblings are mentioned here. Yeah. Is because Jesus is most likely the eldest, is he the one who immediately is assumed to be the, the one providing or taking up the carpentry or, I mean, you know, you got James here, you, you know, I'm just curious how what that, that would look like when it comes to the siblings, especially males. Yeah, you know? my guess is at this point in his age, because if Jesus is 30-something years old, then his siblings are probably in their 20s, right? So they're probably all involved in taking care of the family, but just like the the lion's share of the inheritance would pass to the firstborn, so also would like the family responsibility. So yeah, he's got a he's got a majority share in that. Um, so yeah. Sorry. No, no, you're good, man. So anyway, these people uh, they probably once did like Jesus, but now they're offended at him. And uh, they're envious, I think, of him. That he has this celebrity status and this popularity, and they're still living in, you know, dusty old Nazareth. So verse 4, what does this mean? Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his, old, his own household. What do you think that means? Everybody, everybody knows your history in your hometown. They know every little mistake you made, all the silly things you did. Yeah, so because they know his backstory, they're kind of like, again, who do you think you are? We know you. Yeah. When we would much rather trust a total stranger. Right, right. <laughs> I, I bet if you were to take, I don't know, let's take some famous person. Um, I'm just going to pick somebody, somebody like Kanye West. And you were to go back and interview his middle school friends, right? What would they say? They'd be like, yeah, pff, Kanye, you know, he was a kid down the street. Like, he was nothing special. And now today, like, millions of people idolize him, right? It's it's that kind of phenomenon. Like, Jesus, we, we, we know the house that you live in. Like, we played with you in the field. Like, who do you think you are, right? So a prophet has honor among people who are not his own. And part of the reason for that would be because I think a prophet speaks hard things and the people who raised that prophet are not willing to see him as something great. Right? Who do you think you are again to rise beyond the social status of the rest of us? So there's an echo I think of Jeremiah 119 here where uh, God says to Jeremiah, basically, go speak my words of prophecy. And does anybody know what God says and, or what, what God tells Jeremiah is going to happen? That nobody's going to listen? Yeah, basically, nobody's going to listen to you, right? I'm, I'm going to put my words in your mouth and nobody's even going to care. 
<laughs> so that that is the, uh, the the prophet's curse, if you will. Um, well, and, and the point being, well, and maybe at that moment there was no point because nobody was going to listen. But down the road, people did look back and see and understand. Yeah, absolutely. That doesn't actually diminish the role of a prophet at all, right? That the role of the prophet remains still that important. The role of prophet is not the outcome; it's the message. Yes. And to, still to this day, that hasn't changed. Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. Um, this is what Jeremiah 119 says. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. I mean, we could say that that might even have been prophetic about Christ himself. Right? Okay, so verse 5 gets weird. <laughs> And we've like sort of tapped this a little bit as we've made our way through Mark, but verse 5 says, He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So does Jesus lose his power because the people don't believe? You know, like Tinkerbell or like Elf, Santa and Elf, right? The people have to say like, I believe in Santa and then Santa has his power. Or like Tinkerbell, like, you know, people have to believe and then she can fly and she gets her fairy dust. <coughs> yeah, I don't think so. It's a wording, turn phrase, explaining that he wasn't going to, there's no point. <laughs> they weren't going to listen or be amazed even if they didn't. Yeah, but this interaction, I think that's right, but this interaction is really fascinating. Because what I think you get a picture of here is that because these people don't believe... <coughs> Jesus responds to their disbelief and gives them exactly what they expect. I, my question is, is the word could or in the, in the, did it really mean could do in, or in the sense of cannot, could not do? Cannot do or, or would not. Um, yeah, that would be or a good question. Did. I guess no. I, I can try and uh, look it up here. Yeah, I didn't mean unable. Right. Yeah, let me see. I'll see if I can find it in, in um, my software here, real quick. Uh, mm. Mark 6, 5, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the Greek word dunamai, which means, you know, kind of power, or edunata, which is the actual word there, but, but it's from the, the Greek word dunamai. So, like, he was not able... I know this is this is tricky um, because certainly we don't have any power over God to make him able or not able to do things, right? That's not determined by us. And yet this is a teaching of the Bible that like God is not going to do things contrary to like what we expect him to do. The, the prosperity gospel that twists start tw twisting this by saying you know the, you have the power in your lips you know to to speak into existence all these things saying that you know 
in that frame anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true, and 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 that that is one of the errors, right? One of the errors is like God responds to everything that yeah. you wish and hope and ask for, and so <laughs> you know you need to have great faith to get things from God. That's I think a biblical error. But the other side is that like your faith is totally irrelevant in the relationship with God. I would say that's also an error, right? James chapter 1 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Which is a good example of an explanation of what's going on here in the Gospel of Mark. Yeah. These people had no faith. Right. And, and this is why Jesus was not gonna, could not respond. There was nothing to respond to. Yeah. So it wasn't an even that power. Right. Was that there was nothing to respond to. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. There was nothing to respond to. And, and right? God, God innate as a human. I mean, God, I mean, this is where I'm, I get, things get muddled for me. As a human man, Jesus, God, God enables him, right? So he did not enable him to do anything because of their lack of faith. Would you say that? Yeah, I think that that's, that's a way of saying it. It's like God would have willingly poured out his power to, to do more miracles here, but there was nothing to respond to. There was no belief in him, no faith in him. There was only doubt. There was skepticism. There was even offense, mm-hmm. right? Total jealousy and, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know, uh, a yeah. Yeah. Fools. Yeah. yeah, fools is a good word. So, I don't know. This is just an interesting thing for us to think about. Like, God desires relational partnership with us in our faith, in our love for him. Right? Um, God will work in spite of our faith. Jesus was raised from the dead even though nobody believed it. Right? So, God will work in spite of our faith. But... We are being, throughout the course of our life, tested to believe in him. And our response should be, I have faith, right? I have faith like Abraham, which Hebrews 11 says that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. So that's the kind of faith we should have. Either God will provide some way out, like he did with the ram, or if it goes badly, he'll weave it to make some good, right? That's the kind of faith that we should persist in having. Okay, so in response, Jesus marvels at their unbelief, verse 6. The Greek here means to be extraordinarily impressed or disturbed. I've always struggled with this because it's, it, you, how can you shock God, right? If Jesus is God, it's always been in my mind, you know, like, because some says, you know, marveled, some say astonished, some, you know, there's a couple other uh, words depending upon your, inter, you know, your um, version, yeah. but I, I've always thought that's, you know, he first off is he, he, same thing with the centurion, right? He, he's amazed or he's he's shocked at the belief of the centurion. Yeah. But yet in this situation, he's he's astonished that they you know they yeah. have no no faith. And that that dual nature of Jesus gets uh, you know challenging for us to wrap our minds around that he's a completely God and completely man. And so you know, in his nature as God, no, he's not surprised by anything. But in his nature as man. I think he can be surprised by things. And and maybe it's not even so much surprise. Maybe he was, in fact, expecting this. But this, because this word can be disturbed, right? right? This is tragic. And if you think about it, if you grew up 
and you spent 30 years around a guy who was perfect, never ever sinned, like never spoke a harsh word at you, never joined you in any of the naughty things that you were doing, never disobeyed his parents, ne like never did anything wrong. Would you really be all that surprised if he showed up one day and was like, I can touch you and heal you? Right? I wouldn't. And yet these people are. Right? It's like, do you really not know this guy? You say you know him, and yet when he lives like this, you're surprised. But I think the signs were there all along. How did you miss them? But I think you're right. It's not so much, um, you know, when, when you see people do things and you go in your, and you know them and you know, and you know that's the way they're going to respond. Still in your head, you go, how can they do it? Yeah. How can they not know? Sure. I mean, that is that yeah. Kind of yeah. That's true. <clears throat> when I read that he was marble, I always think maybe um, this is Jesus showing his humanity mm. and kind of showing a little compassion and an understanding of what we go through mm. because he doesn't very often in the scripture that comes to my mind show what he's feeling on the human side and this is kind of a, like a chance for him to do that yeah like he marveled just like we would marvel when we can't can't believe sure. willing to do you know yeah 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 no that's true well i i would go even a step further because i think when it says and he marveled because of their unbelief i think that this is more than a failure to just be, to believe i think that this is an indication of of willful hard-heartedness right i mean that is the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Is like we should know better, but we have this willful hard-heartedness. Um, understand it. It's God in front of them, and they don't recognize. Him. Yeah. And yet, all the demons recognize him and shut up. Jesus, Lord, they know who he is, and he has to silence them. Yeah. And yet, here's God in front of. Them. Yeah, and they don't know who he is, and this is where he marvels at the fact he's humble, and yet he marvels at the fact, and they don't like that they miss it. Yeah, who he is. Yep, and uh, and this I think is is particularly the case in contrast to the uh, the chapter that came before, where you have Jairus mm -hmm. and this woman, and their their great faith, right? They recognize this guy, and they they benefit from their faith in him. Um, but I, but I think part of the difficulty here is if, if Jesus who came from my hometown has risen to this place of greatness, then my own mediocrity has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. yep. And in some ways we can say the same thing. Like if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then my own frailty has to be dealt with in light of this power. Okay. So I would say, just talking real quick about like the nature of belief here, I think the simplest way to talk about belief is just confidence. Do you have confidence in this man, Jesus? Right? Belief is not just this thing, because you can say, like, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, 
But the truth of the matter is, if you don't live the way that he taught, then you don't actually have confidence in him. And therefore, I would say you don't actually believe in him. Right? You believe in him as an idea, but not as a reality that should shape the very fundamental nature of who you are and how you live. And that's the kind of belief that Jesus is actually after. I don't think Jesus is after, like, a cognitive recognition. So, but this belief does not change reality, but it does change us. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like our belief in who God is does not change anything about who he is. Jesus was not in any way diminished because these people did not believe in him. But it does change us, right? Our belief in God shapes us. The circumstance may not change yet our heart and the way that we see things will be different. Yes. Yes. He kind of gets in the meat of it in John 15 when he talks about the vine. About the vine? Yeah. About, and this is how, if we're going to be Christians, then we have to really stay in the vine. Yeah. If we don't, we're going to and die. Yeah, that's good. And so uh, we can stay with a Christian. I told you when, when, first, when we first met. I said, yeah, I'm a Christian because I went to church. Right. It didn't make me a Christian. Yeah. It just made a person who went to church. Totally. So but being a Christian is being a Christian. Yeah. It doesn't mean going to church. Right, right. I want to go to the bakery and make sure you bake. Yep, the, totally. So so that's I think this is what's going on. Is that, are you a Christian? And can you define being a Christian? Yeah. By... How your relationship with God is, and this is where the model <clears throat> they don't want any relationship with Him at all. Yeah, no, He's akin to that. Right. Yeah. Amen. And don't forget, there's brothers in there, and they're part of the mix. Yeah. Because they don't believe in Him either. Right. Until after the resurrection. Yep. Yep. You know, it, it says that I don't know the year says, but I know it says he wondered at their unbelief, and then he says he was going around to the villages teaching. So it wasn't just one little sect of people. I mean, he was he was traveling around Nazareth, and he was probably seeing this all over. Yeah, right. So it wasn't just one incident with a couple of people. You think? Well, that's a good question. I I think that actually uh, the 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 end of verse six there, mm. and he went about among the villages teaching, is kind of adversive, meaning. This is what happened in Nazareth yeah. in that particular village. Mm. And so as a result, he left and went to other places, yeah. you know, sort of like Paul does when he tries to go to the Jews and they're like, forget you, man. He's like, all right, well, then I'll be the apostle of the Gentiles, okay. you know. Okay, so let's let's get into verse seven. And I, I brought you these handouts uh, about Herod, but we're definitely not going to get there today. So that's okay. And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, why two by two? What was it? A witness? Yeah. So this idea of two by two comes from the Old Testament. That you, you, 
you couldn't accept the testimony of a witness unless there was at least two people to testify, right? And, and actually our modern kind of court system is based on this. Like we will allow you to testify in court just your one particular view, but we're asking the jury to consider all of the evidence, right? So in the Old Testament to ensure that there weren't false testimonies, you had to have the witness of two people, okay? So God is essentially, Jesus is essentially saying, I'm going to testify the truth of my nature by sending two witnesses, okay? So that comes from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. I would say that it's probably also for encouragement. I think that the work of doing ministry can be discouraging. You know, if you go into a village and they treat you the way that they treated Jesus, like, who do you think you are? What is this message you bring? then that can be discouraging. And it's helpful to have somebody who can, you know, share in that discouragement with you to encourage you to press on. You know, this is kind of interesting because the Mormon missionaries, they send out their people two by two, but do you know why they do it? Yes, because at the end of every day, they have to file reports about how they were responding to the conversations. And if you show any sort of, you know, if they were to come into my house and I was to say, hey, interesting, I'm a pastor. Let's sit down and let's look at the Bible. And one of them were to, were to say, whoa, that's interesting. I didn't know that. The other one files a report. And will that missionary ever be back in my house? No, he gets yanked and sent to some new place, right? This is not Jesus' motivation. He's not concerned about reporting on them. I think he's concerned about the testimony and then also the encouragement. So uh, I'll, I'll play my hand here a little bit. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, you have these two witnesses that are killed and then brought back to life. And there's lots of speculation as to who these two witnesses are uh, in Revelation. You know, is it, is it Elijah and Moses? Is it Isaiah and... You know, some some other Old Testament prophet. I think it's the church. I think the church stands as witness to the truth of Jesus and that there will come a day as these events are unfolding where it looks like the church is stamped out and yet it will still come back to life, if you will. Sort of like Elijah says to God, you know, I'm the only one left. And God's like, no, no, no. I got 7,000 people still here. You just don't know that they're there, right? So I, I don't know that there's any way to know who those two witnesses are. But the, the fact that there are two witnesses is important, right? Because that's the, the biblical model for testimony. Okay, so they're supposed to take no, no food, no extra clothes, no bags, nothing like that. Uh, the provision that they need is supposed to come from the hospitality of the people that welcome them. And they're supposed to trust God that he will ultimately use the people that they encounter to provide for their needs. Um, this is very much like God's provision for Israel in the desert as they're wandering through the wilderness after they leave slavery in Egypt. You know, God just provides manna from heaven. He provides water from a rock. He provides chicken wings that blow in on the wind. <laughs> Not exactly chicken wings, but you know what I'm saying. Um, he even provides, there's some verses there that talk about how like their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't get old, that even their teeth didn't rot. 
even though they had no opportunity to like brush their teeth, right? Um, and then uh, you have Luke chapter 10, verse 7, which is kind of a parallel passage. And in that passage, Jesus actually sent out 72 of his disciples in the same manner to go and to testify. And in that verse, he says that a laborer is worth his wages. So meaning that God will use the provision of those that you are reaping the harvest among to provide for your needs. It's kind of beautiful. Now, this kind of hospitality is really a lost art in the American culture, isn't it? We don't do this so well, unfortunately. So there's a ministry that uh, Dave, um, anyway, brother, told me about called Candle in the Window. Hmm. And he said it, it's it's where essentially other Christians who are visiting a town or something uh, will go onto the website, say, "Hey, we're we're going to be coming to the area," and you know, and it gives you as an opportunity to essentially host a, a family who proclaims Christ and uh, affirms the, the general tenets. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. It is interesting. That's very cool. Yeah, I like that idea. So when I, I had a, an experience like a hospitality that's left a pretty lasting impression on me, and I don't know how we even do this in America, so I'm not saying that like, like I think we could do this better, but I don't have any ideas for how this could be done better. But like I, I was uh, doing missions work in Pakistan and we were backpacking through the, the Karakoram mountain range, distributing Bibles to these rural villages in the middle of nowhere, you know, in the middle of the Himalaya mountains. And, um, you're going through these villages, there's like three to 500 people in them. There's no hotel, there's nowhere to stay. So literally we would walk into a village and, um, and I mean, you couldn't walk through the village without being offered like 50 cups of chai, you know, come, come to my house, come sit with me, come talk with me. These people were eager to just show you hospitality and invite you in. And like probably 40% of the time, because there were some places where we'd like found a hub that did have a little hotel and then we would go out from there to different villages. But like when we were traveling further up the valley, we would come to these villages at 3, 4 p.m. and people would say, where are you staying? And we would say, no, we don't have a place. And they would invite us into their home and they would just put us up for the night. And no charge, they would feed us and you know, th their show of hospitality was really quite incredible. Did they speak um, English? Yeah, like probably like 30% of the people would speak English and if and if you got to a village where most people didn't they would run and they would find the person in the village who did speak English so the government schools there taught English so this is more I mean this is totally a custom right in this area this time more than we, I mean westernized American yeah we we have you know big cities and hotels yes. You didn't have that. So, you know, you, yeah, as you would travel along the way, you would look for some distant relative to stay with, or you would look for somebody maybe who was willing to put you up. Maybe there was some kind of little boarding house, but, um, you know, that, that's how it's gonna, gonna happen in a world like that. And wasn't hospitality kind of a mandate? I mean, to, back then to a lot of people? Well, you're talking about a culture that, so our culture is like what we would call like a truth-based culture. We're, well, it comes from that. Uh, many Asian cultures are more, or like Middle Eastern cultures are more what we would call like an honor-shame culture. And so it would be shameful to your family to not put somebody up for the night. 
right? You, you can't afford it. You don't have hospitality. And so out of honor, you would invite them in and it would be honoring to you to have a guest in your home. So, um, to so yeah, that's built into kind of the fabric of the culture there. Okay, verse 10, I think, uh, right? Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Um, that seems kind of obvious. It seems kind of redundant. Like what is Jesus saying here? I think what he's getting at is like, be faithful in the work don't go looking for more. If these people have offered you hospitality, be content to accept their hospitality, right? Take what is being offered as something that's coming to you from God's provision. Um, and, and the hospitality I think offered should also be taken as kind of interest in their message, right? Who are you? Oh, we come on behalf of the Messiah. Oh, come in, tell me more about that, right? They're showing interest in the message. So invest in them because of that interest and I think in this sense this might be a verse to encourage pastors and ministry leaders to stop always looking for the next big thing right like be content in what God is doing be content in the place that he has given you I think there is this tendency in churches to kind of like move up the ladder if you will if you talk to some youth pastors they'll They'll tell you, yeah, I want to be a senior pastor, but like, you know, you got to kind of like pay your dues to get there. It's like, well, no, not necessarily. Not if you want to go pastor a rural church of 50 people who are who would love to have you come and be their senior pastor, right? I think that applies for our youth too, because sometimes they may want to do this grandiose thing, yeah. which is not necessarily wrong, but they got to start in, in their house, you know, in the way that they treat their parents, yeah, that true. That maybe they can go ahead and be in their neighborhood or why not, instead of always thinking about like, yeah, just the biggest thing. Be faithful with little. Prove yourself faithful with little, and God will give you faith or opportunities to be faithful with more. I think probably the 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 most uh, the the word here that would be maybe most connected to our culture would be FOMO, mm -hmm. right? Guys, don't have FOMO. Don't, fear of missing out. Right, you walk into this house. They invite you. Maybe it's maybe it's the poorest person in town who has the least influence. But if they've showed interest, invest there, and don't be afraid that you might be missing out on something greater over here. Stop looking for more attractive offers. Right? We live in a culture that's like, hey, I'd love to invite you over, and you're like, yeah, maybe. Depends on what other offers I get between now and then. Right? Yeah. And um, just real quick, to go back to the, the two two tunics thing, is that just to, is that just saying don't don't just more of a trust God? Don't don't take more than what you would normally in a day, as opposed to having extra provisions. Is that all that was saying? Yeah. So the tunic is like the undershirt, basically, right. you know. And uh, yeah, it's it's just trust that your provisions will be met. I was just curious if there was anything else. Yeah. There. No, it's a good question. My commentary talks about how many peasants had only a single cloak, so maybe it's also not to come across as better than. Mm -hmm. That's good. I like that. Yeah, it was pretty typical that people would have one set of clothes, you know. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Okay, verse 11. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So here's what's really interesting about this is uh, 
the Jews, when they would travel, if they went into a Gentile town, when they left, they would go through this kind of ritual. They would shake the dust off their feet and off their cloaks in, in a way of saying, I disassociate myself from all of the godlessness that is occurring here. And now Jesus is actually giving to these Jewish um, disciples of his this testimony against Jews. Isn't that interesting? That actually the Gentiles are not necessarily the problem. It's those who will not associate themselves with the Messiah whose works need to be disassociated from them. Um, Paul actually does this in Acts chapter 18, verse 6. And he actually does it to Jews. right? He tries to go into the synagogue and teach, and they're like, they want to run him out of town on a spit. And uh, he shakes the dust off. He says, your blood is on your own hands. And that's actually an echo of Ezekiel chapter 3 which maybe you're familiar with. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God says to the prophet Ezekiel, I want you to go and I want you to proclaim this message. If you do not proclaim the message, then the blood of these people is on your hands. If you go and you proclaim the message and they refuse the message, then the blood is on their own hands. Right? And I think in some ways, you know, as we think about evangelism, we should think very seriously about that passage. Because we've been given this command to go and make disciples. And if we're unwilling to do that, I think there will be a very serious conversation with Jesus when we all stand before him in judgment, where he, he could say to us, like, I gave you this task. Why? Why did you not do what I commanded you? And cowardice is one of the things listed as, as you know, yeah. and, and I know a lot of people say, well, I, I just don't feel prepared. It, it, they give an excuse as to why they didn't engage somebody in an opportunity where God yeah. has provided that. And, you know, I, I, I'm just, you know, it's, it's, be faithful to, to, you know, give give the good news and it's up to God, you know, to yes. handle that. You know? yes. we're, not, we're not responsible for the fruit, right? You mentioned John 15. God bears the fruit, but we are responsible for the, the work, the effort, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, we got a couple more minutes, so we'll, we'll finish out this section. So, verses 12 and 13, they, they went out, they proclaimed that people should repent, they cast out demons, they anointed with oil, many were sick and healed them. So, this is the disciples doing the very same things that Jesus do, does. And again, that's what a disciple does, right? A disciple does the things that the teacher has given them to do. They preach a gospel of repentance, which is the same way Jesus began his ministry. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, they proclaim this good news. That's the gospel, right? The good news that uh, repentance is necessary, meaning the good news starts with this. You are a sinner. Right? It's only really good news once you've received this bad news that you need help. Through repentance and faith, God has made the kingdom available to even you. Right? So the disciples present the gospel as repent. Man, how different is that from many mainstream presentations of the gospel? Yeah. 
I think if you were to go into, I don't know, I'm not going to give a number to it, but let's just say too many churches, you wouldn't hear a gospel of you're a sinner and you need to repent and there's grace available to you. You would hear a gospel of God really loves you and he's eager to make your life even better than it already is. Right? God accepts you, which is true, but he accepts you in spite of the fact that you're not acceptable. Right? By his grace. That's why he accepts you. God wants to make you happy. Yeah, God, exactly. God is here to make you happy. If you're struggling with life, you can find a God who will make it better. And like, there are some elements of those things that are true, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're a sinner and you can repent and you can enter the kingdom of God. Right? The problem when you say there's some, some elements is that that means that of integrity means 100%. Right. It means wholeness. Yeah. And if you got 99.9%, that means it's a 100% lie. Yeah. Because it's not, uh, it's not all. It's not the wholeness. It's not yeah. So this is where prosperity gospel comes in, and this is all the rest of the stuff. It's all a lie. Yeah. And so this is like what's being fed in many churches today, not even using the Bible. Right. Or they're using Eastern, uh, Eastern philosophy along with the Bible. Sure. Which is. Whoa. And so I'm seeing that when I go to Africa, and I'm seeing that when I, when I see uh, other places I go. This is not good. Yeah. So. Totally. The syncretism of blending things with yes. Christianity, and it's not the real gospel. Yeah. Do you, th do you think that the vast majority of that is it, is it cowardice? That, that many preachers, even if they may be well intentioned, are afraid to preach a hard message that the gospel is giving, yet they may lose their congregation because they you know, owe money on land or they have this or that yeah. and they're not trusting God? Yeah, cowardice is certainly an aspect of it. Yeah, totally. And the, the gospel of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand is not a very winsome gospel. People hang around Jesus when he's healing, but when he starts teaching hard things, like you can have no life apart from me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, John 6, people leave, yeah. right? So, and the great irony though is that, uh, you know, the, the liberal churches that have been saying we need to stop preaching the difficult things of scripture and start preaching things that are more in line with what the culture is doing, those churches are all dying. You know, the prosperity churches do seem to be growing, but there's no real depth there. They're growing on under false pretenses. Um, and, the, and the congregations are selfish in return. They're, they're, yeah. they're looking for them. Totally, totally. And the way that you actually grow a church is by just telling people the truth and letting the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does, right? And maybe the church numerically doesn't grow. That's fine. But it will grow in depth and commitment to Jesus. Well, a lot of preachers too, I think, uh, will will essentially preach to the preach to the choir. I mean, they figure they've got a bunch of people who are already in agreement with him. He doesn't not need to go the repentance route. But in reality, even believers need to have the message of yes, repentance. repentance. Yeah, totally, totally. You repent once for the forgiveness of your sins in totality. But you repent continually because you have a relationship with this God and your heart hurts for the way that you have wounded him. Yeah, first right. John 1 9. Yeah. There you go. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So um, yeah, so so the when you when you in many churches they are they are proclaiming a message of unconditional acceptance. And that's actually not true. Okay? 
God's acceptance of you is actually conditioned on two things. Okay? The first one is your repentance. And the second one is the crucifixion of Christ. That is a condition that is required in order for you to be accepted by God. And if your faith is not in the one who was crucified for you, then you don't have the right conditions for God to accept you. Now, his, his acceptance is unconditional in the sense that like, it won't change based on what you do. But repentance and faith in Christ are necessary. Does that make sense? Because he's not going to leave you like he found you either. Yes. So whatever you were struggling with and even maybe continue to, you will be able to renew your mind now that you have Christ in you. But he will never leave you like however you were. Yeah. Amen. True. That's good. Thank you. Okay, so let me finish up with this because we got to wrap up. But um, I, I want to point out that the Gospels and Acts are, are unique books in the Bible because they represent a transitional period. Okay? So, and here is, the reason I'm bringing this up now is because this is the transition in process. Jesus is doing his teaching, but in the midst of his teaching, he's sending out his disciples. And they're going to take up the mantle and they're going to go and build the church. But this is this overlapping transitional period where you're moving from law to gospel. You're moving from ethnicity to faith, right? Who are the people of God? Not ethnic Jews, but those who have faith. You're moving from rituals to repentance, right? You go to the temple and you sacrifice your dove and then you get forgiveness. No, no, no. We don't need the ritual. We need a heart that is engaged in repentance, right? So from rituals to repentance, you're moving from temple to church. Where's the place that you meet God? You meet him in the temple. Now, no, the spirit, the, the worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The church is the body of Christ that's filled with the spirit of Christ. Okay? I'm not talking about church like where you gather on Sunday morning. I'm talking about the church as a body. You're moving from Israel to Christ. And then you're moving ultimately from Christ to his disciples. Does that make sense? So that's, that's how the transition is unfolding. Is this the first instance where we have them going off to do essentially miracles in Jesus' name? He's, he's casting out demons. He's he, They're healing. I mean, they're, they're doing these things, you know, apart from having Christ there, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Which is incredible, right? Mm. All right, we got to end there. If you want to take the Herod thing or give it back to me, either way, I'll probably just print more next time we meet anyway. So we won't meet for the next two weeks. So the next time we're back together is that, I think it's like the 25th or something like that. Um and uh, the handout you have on Herod is just to clarify, because Herod is used for like at least three different, well, Herod is used for two different people. It's just confusing the way the, way the family thing operates throughout the, the New Testament. So we'll clarify some of that the next time we get together. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. I, th- I, I pray that we would be people of true repentance and faith. And that our faith would be in, in Christ. And that we, we wouldn't um, be worried about how great our faith is, but instead we would keep our eyes fixed on the one who is great. That, that we would trust in the one who is powerful, in God, in Christ his Son. Um, and we thank you for the work that Jesus did to lead people to repentance and to restore our right relationship with you, Father. 
Um, and I pray that we would walk in that reality every day. In Christ's name, amen. amen.